<laughs> this is the sound of a spectacular meal. Taste the world with the official cruise line of the James Beard Foundation. This is delicious. Mmm. Experience small ship cruising that's 180 degrees from ordinary. Learn more at windstarcruises.com. Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. On Twitter. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money, all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since we discovered Spotify for Podcasters, we feel like having options like video podcasts and Q&A lets us be more creative on another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome to this On the Verge Major League Mailbag. This is Zach Spedden taking your questions this week about all things Orioles, including the Major League, some minor league questions as well. But we're going to start with a question from Ben Dewurst, and it concerns the big story this week in Major League Baseball, and that is the potential move of the Oakland A's to Las Vegas. Ben says, you have to solve the Tampa and Oakland concerns and expand MLB by two teams. When the dust clears, which four cities have teams? Um, So there's really two answers to this question for me. There's what my heart says, and there's what my head says. Um, My heart does not want any team to move, so my ideal would be that Oakland does find a way to stay in Oakland, the Rays stay in Tampa Bay, and then you give Montreal a team in the same division as the Orioles, so I have a built-in excuse to go to Montreal at least once a year. Uh, Great city, it was a good baseball town in its day, and I would love to see them get one back. However, things have been kind of quiet up there since the proposed split season plan from the Rays fell apart. So I really don't know what's going on with the new ballpark situation. Um, and although this, you know, the possible move of the A's to Las Vegas is not a done deal by any stretch of the imagination, it does seem that the A's are definitely heading on that track. So for the sake of this for now, I'll just say that In my head, I see the A's moving um, by 2027, the Rays staying put. And then that leaves you with expansion teams. I think Nashville does get one. It's a good market. Um, And then in the West Coast, I really like Salt Lake's bid. And the reason that I like Salt Lake's bid is that I can look at that one and I know where the money is coming from. The Miller family has an excellent track record there. Um, having owned the Utah Jazz for many years. 
So they know what they're doing. They're going to have the money to get that project done and to get the team. Whereas right now I look at Portland and Nashville and some of the other, you know, rumored contenders. And I'm not really sure who the main money person is. But Salt Lake has a clear money person. Montreal does as well. But as I mentioned earlier, things have been kind of quiet there. So if I had to guess based on the way that I'm seeing things right now, I think you see an expansion team in Nashville and an expansion team in Salt Lake. Uh, you do have the geographical issue of Seattle being kind of on an island right now, and Portland would help mitigate that. But I think Salt Lake has the stronger bid in place or the stronger potential bid in place. Tossie wants to know, what do you realistically think happens with Joey Ortiz and Jordan Westberg if Ramona Rios, Gunnar Henderson, Jorge Mateo, and Adam Frazier all stay healthy and productive all season? I wrote that assuming Mateo's hip issue is minor. That's what Tossie adds there on to that question. Um, if those, if the Orioles' crop of infielders are healthy and productive then the team's going to contend for a playoff spot. And I don't see the Orioles making any major changes in the middle of a playoff spot. That said, I don't think that shuts the door on Mate- or um, excuse me, Ortiz or Westberg getting to the major leagues entirely. As of right now, I'd suspect that you are going to see them, but their role would be reduced a little bit because of those guys. And then, of course, there's always a possibility that one of them is dangled in a trade. I could see Westberg appealing to a lot of teams, especially if they're not looking at him as a shortstop. Maybe they see him as a second baseman or a third baseman. But we also know that Ortiz, with his defense and the way that he's hitting the ball right now at Norfolk, is going to be a really sought-after player if the Orioles do make a move. Uh, Justin Daly wants to know, if Gunner keeps playing at this level through May, do you send him back down? I wouldn't. Because Gunner is at least getting on base, um, and there is something to be said for that. I know that he's not hitting for contact or hitting for power the way that we had all hoped. He's definitely off to a slower start than I expected. But when he's still drawing walks and he's still getting on base, he's going to provide you with some value. He comes into Saturday with a 371 on on-base percentage, 15 walks and 70 plate appearances. Those are really good numbers. So for that reason, I would keep him up. I just also don't know what you would send him back to AAA, um, what development benefits he would get out of going to AAA when he dominated that level last year. Maybe you think he needs to get his timing back, which he does, but I think he can do that in the major leagues. So if he continues to play at this level where he's getting on base a lot and he's giving you quality at bats, I leave him up. Now, if that starts to change and it looks like he's really pressing and we see the walks drop and the quality of at-bats diminish, then it's a different conversation to be had. But for now, I would leave him alone. Question here from Matt, which is, who is Brian Baker and what has he done with Brian Baker? And Matt referring to the strong start that Brian Baker is off to this year. So Matt's a member of our Patreon community and, you know, very active in our WhatsApp chat. And Matt, I think you have a little bit of what I used to have with Brad Brock, where it's like the way that the guy makes me feel when he's on the mound and the results don't really match up, which means that he generally gets the job done, but for some reason he just makes me nervous. And Brock was a guy who, you know, for a few years there, 
had kind of high walk rates, didn't strike out a lot of guys, but he would usually find a way to get the job done. Baker was a little bit of that last year, but this year he has really kicked it into another gear. He's getting a more, his whiff percentage on his pitches is up across the board. Um, he has dropped the walks considerably. And I think really it's a continuation of what we saw at the end of last year. He was getting stronger as last season went on. You might recall that he had a few bad outings early in the year. Um, there was a couple of them paired in a row against the Angels and the Yankees in April. He had a few rough ones in late April, early May as well. And then really settled in by the end of the year. So I would say that a f- Switz kind of flipped with him sometime in the second half last year. And he's been able to carry that over into this season. Now, are all of his numbers across the board sustainable? Maybe not, but I think he's generally been a player that is trending in the right direction. And it's he has been a really valuable piece to this bullpen to start off the season. Um, a question from a different Matt now, Matt S. Uh, Matt wants to know, what kind of haul would it take to get Otani at the All-Star break, assuming the Angels aren't in the race? I would imagine that the Angels probably start the negotiations with something that looks like the package the Padre, the Nationals got last year for Juan Soto. Basically, you're going to be looking for a team to kind of hollow out the top 10 part of its rankings or top 10 part of its prospect rankings, give you a couple of guys that are major league ready or really close to major league ready in return. So for the sake of the Orioles, um, I would say that where the Angels start off would be Jackson Holiday would be part of the deal. Colton Cowser would be in there. One of or both D.L. Hall and Cade Povitz. Dylan Beavers, maybe Heston Kerstad, I think would be in that mix. So you would be looking at a big haul going back to the Angels either way. I don't see the Orioles jumping into that because I don't think the Orioles are going to tr- give up that much for a rental, especially when they know they have no shot at signing Otani in the offseason. So I think realistically, it's either going to be a team that can go, that is willing to go all in and doesn't care about giving up prospects, or it's going to be a team that has a realistic chance to re-sign him in the offseason. So, you know, I could see where if they were playing better right now, maybe the Giants would try to jump into the mix. I could see the Dodgers maybe being in there if the Angels are willing to trade him to their regional rival there in LA. Maybe the Mets are in the mix. There's a lot of potential suitors for someone as good as Otani, but when it comes down to it, if the Angels move him, we know it's either going to be a team that is just willing to give them what they want, doesn't care if they only have Otani for half a season, or it's going to be a team that has the money and has what it would take to give Otani a good offer in the offseason and get him to stick around. Kevin Brown with an interesting question here, which is, rank from worst to best, Candom Yards, Harbor Park, Prince George's Stadium, Ripken Stadium, Purdue Stadium. So that's, of course, the ballparks for the Orioles, Norfolk Tides, Bowie Bay Sox, Aberdeen Ironbirds, and Delmarva Shorebirds. So I'm going to go more on the fan experience with this question. I think that if you ask the players for their opinion, the answer might be different. But I would go Canham Yards at the top. That's an obvious number one. I would go Norfolk second. Although parts of Harbor Park are a little dated, 
it's still a really good fan experience. Downtown Norfolk's a lot of fun, so you can take advantage of that before or after the game. I always have a good time when I go to Norfolk. And then after that, I would go Aberdeen. I think that, that is a good ballpark from the fan experience. I know that, you know, we've kind of made some criticisms about their broadcast quality, but the fan experience when you're in Ripken Stadium is generally pretty good. Purdue Stadium, um, certainly the renovations that the Swerbirds have done have helped close the gap with Aberdeen in terms of the fan experience. Good sight lines around the ballpark. The walkway that they put out in the outfield is really nice. And then I would put Bowie last. And Bowie, you know, it's a comfortable place to watch a game. You have a good perspective on the field wherever you go, but there's nothing really remarkable about that ballpark. And Bowie, Frederick, and Delmarva, up until Delmarva was renovated, all looked exactly the same. So it's not a ballpark that has a lot of character. I think players like playing there more than they like playing in Aberdeen for various reasons, especially hitters. But I think from a fan experience side of things, Aberdeen is definitely ahead of Bowie. And, you know, there are some positives to Prince George's Stadium, but overall, there's nothing really remarkable about it either. Uh, Sterling with a question here, which is, in your opinion, do you think the Pirates, Cubs, and Diamondbacks can sustain their early season success? This is an interesting question, and when you look at these teams right now, they're obviously all off to good starts. Pittsburgh at 14-7 and is a half game out in the NL Central with Milwaukee in first place. The Cubs are right behind them at 12-7, and and then the Diamondbacks are leading the National League West at 12-9. and Two and a half, or two games up on the Dodgers, and two and a half up on the Padres. I thought Arizona had the makings of a playoff team coming into this year, so I think they sustained this success, at least on some level. I don't know that I see them winning the division. I still think that the Padres are going to eventually catch up and win the West, but I definitely could see Arizona in the playoffs this year. The Cubs and the Pirates are kind of interesting stories, and I'll start with the Pirates because the last time I did a mailbag, I said that the Pirates could be this year's version of the Orioles, except that maybe, or this year's version of the 2022 Orioles, except that they might not finish above 500. They might end up winning, you know, 75 to 78 games, let's say, and that next year would be the year they would really take the big step forward and compete. They might be a little bit ahead of schedule. I think the question for them is going to be, can some of the guys that are off to strong starts sustain some level of success? So you look at Connor Joe right now, has an OPS of over 1,000. We know that that's not going to last all season. Um, the pitching staff is in pretty good shape. So overall, things are working for them. And I think that health is going to be a big factor for them as well. Because we know that Key Brian Hayes, although he's not off to a strong start this year, has had injury issues the last few years, and we know that he has the potential to make their lineup a lot better if he can stay healthy. So maybe they don't, you know, I don't think they're going to sustain this level of success all year long, but they can at least make things interesting in that division. And then as for the Cubs, yeah, there's some pretty interesting pieces there. And you look at the start that Cody Bellinger is off to, he's kind of looking like the Cody Bellinger of old right now. Uh, OPS of 943, five homers, 14 RBIs. If the Cubs have somehow fixed Cody Bellinger, then they could hang around in this race and probably at least compete for a wild card spot. And while I don't think he's the you know the sole X factor, 
you're adding potentially an MVP caliber player to the mix if you can tap into the old Cody Bellinger, the Cody Bellinger we saw before 2020. Um, which so far the Cubs have been able to. Dansby Swanson is also off to a very strong start. Marcus Stroman is pitching really well. You know, he's not going to sustain a sub-1 ERA all year, but we know that he's a dependable starter who can generally get the job done. So I could see the Pirates and the Cubs hanging around and at least making things interesting. It may work out that the Pirates perhaps slip a little bit, maybe don't make the playoffs, maybe even don't finish above 500, but still have a really good year and a year that shows that they're heading in the right direction. And then for the Cubs, you know, again, I could see them hanging around and at least being in the wild card mix. Milwaukee is off to a good start, and we know that they were the best team in the NL Central up until August last year when things really dropped off for them. And then the Cardinals, you're just waiting to see, are they going to heat up at some point? Is that Cardinals devil magic, as it's referred to, somehow going to work its way into the mix and we see them in the playoffs again. I'll go to a question now from my co-host Bob Phelan and a question on Twitter because they basically cover the same thing. Bob wants to know, do you see any signs of Gunner snapping out of his slump? Compare what you see from his defense at shortstop versus third base. And then Jonathan Evans, at JohnEvans57 on Twitter, Asked for my thoughts on Gunner's season so far, both at the plate and in the field. So, Bob and Jonathan, I'll take your question here now. I think that Gunner is going to snap out of the slump because he's still putting together quality at bats. It goes back to what I talked to earlier, which is that he's drawing a lot of walks still. He's got a high on base percentage. And typically, if a player can sustain that, even when they're not hitting, that's a sign that things are eventually going to go their way. The ball is going to start falling in for Gunnar more often, and he'll get out of this. I think that his problem right now at the plate is that his timing is just thrown off. From what I have seen from him this year, and this is kind of an eye test observation, so take it with a grain of salt, but I feel like he's taking a lot of pitches, especially fastballs, that he really should be driving, and he's hitting soft flyouts to left field. Now, we know that Gunner is a really good opposite field hitter. He's been that way throughout his career. But tip, other than that home run he had at Texas, we really have not seen him drive the ball the other way that we're used to seeing him. Um, it's really been a lot of soft contact, a lot of fly balls right at the left fielder. So I think that once he gets his timing going at the plate and he is able to turn around on the hard fastballs a little bit better than he is right now, the results will come around for him, and he'll be right in the Rookie of the Year race where he should be. And then defensively at third base, we know that Gunner has had issues with throwing accuracy in the past. He has an excellent arm in terms of arm strength, but he has had accuracy problems before. They really plagued him in 2021. Last year, it looks like he may have gotten but beyond them, but then this year we have seen them come back a little bit. And I know that this sounds cliche, but the game does move faster at the major league level. And that's a big part of it, too. I think the other thing that he's really got to work on, well, really two things I would say that he's got to work on is his throwing. One of them is kind of keeping his eye on the ball a little bit longer, making that smoother transition to looking up at the first baseman before he makes his throw. And the other one, and this is an issue that he had in 2021, too, is just because you can make the throw and you can make the throw 
as good, if not better, than a lot of infielders in baseball, doesn't mean you always have to make it. There are times that Gunner will throw the ball to first base when the play just really isn't meant to be. I saw him do that in the Texas series where Slow Chopper comes into fields it ends up throwing it down the line when really he didn't have a play at first base to begin with. He did an excellent job getting to the ball, but the play at first base just wasn't meant to be, and he would have been better off holding on to that ball. That was something that he had an issue with two years ago, and I think that as he adjusts to the major leagues, it's something that he's going to have to work through again. But he'll eventually do that, and he'll be really good at whatever position he settles in as. I think most likely a third baseman, but... You know, he can still play shortstop and he can play it fairly well. And what impresses me about him at shortstop is he does a really good job on those four, six, three double plays of getting the ball to the first baseman. I feel like he barely has the ball in his mitt and it's already flying across the infield to Ryan Malcastle. He does an excellent job of getting that throw out quickly. He has really good arm strength, so the ball gets to first base at a high velocity and he's able to come out on the winning end of a lot of bang-bang plays at first base because of that. That's something that he does really, really well, and I think that it's worth noting. I'll go to a question now from Vivek, which is, with John Means and D.L. Hall on the brink, do you see Cole Irvin joining the rotation again this year? Yeah, I think you're going to see Irvin again. I think that there are some things that he has to work on at Norfolk. I know that he had told Andy Costco, the Baltimore Banner, before his ill-fated start against Oakland, which was ultimately his last start before he was sent down to Norfolk, that things were off with his mechanics. I think specifically it was his back foot. Um, Wasn't where it should be, and that was affecting his command, which makes sense because in certain starts, the stuff kind of looked like you would expect it to, but he was not hitting his spots as well as we've seen him do it in the past. So I think he's going to work through that try to get his command back, and then you're going to see him in the rotation again. And what you just hope for is that, you know, number one, he's throwing strikes more consistently, but that he's able to sort of make that adjustment to not pitching in the Coliseum anymore. We know that pitchers who pitch to contact can have a lot of success at the Coliseum because the ball doesn't travel there, and I'm referring to the Oakland Coliseum. Um, The ball just doesn't travel there. Whereas it's going to travel a lot more in other ballparks. And I think that that still holds true a little bit of Canem Yards, even with the left field wall moved back. So you want to see how he adjusts to that. But I do think you're going to see him in the rotation again. And then after this season, if things haven't quite worked out, the Orioles can reassess. But I do expect to see him again in the, in the Major League rotation. We'll go jump down the questions from Twitter now, and I'll start with this one from at AlphaPrez2020. When will the Orioles actually get serious about acquiring top-of-the-rotation starter, or at least a number two? Um, also, when will the Orioles get serious about locking up our guys, meaning the guys that are currently on the roster now? For the first part of that question, I kind of expect a big pitching move if we see one to happen in the offseason. I think that the Orioles are going to be kind of in that market where they're going to look for this year's equivalent of Tyler Malley as a trade deadline. Malley was a guy that the Twins picked up last year. And while he's not someone who's an ace or even a number two, he can still make your rotation better. And the Twins had that advantage of Malley having 
I think, another year of control beyond the end of the 2022 season. And he's off to a good start this year. So that trade could still work out well for them. And I would expect that the Orioles kind of look for someone in that tier. And as we get further into the season and we figure out who's contending and who's likely to be selling at the deadline, we'll get a sense of who that is. And then as for their offseason plans, I think they're probably going to be in the trade market. I think that although I generally don't like drawing direct parallels between the Orioles and the Astros, I think that the Astros' approach to acquiring pitching where they've been in the market of trading for guys with multiple years of team control left rather than signing top-tier free agents is kind of the direction that I expect the Orioles to go in because I just don't see this front office being willing to give six or seven years and a lot of money to a pitcher that's already at least six years into his career and has that wear and tear on his arm. And then I think that a big part of their plans, too, are going to be the development of Kyle Bradis and Grayson Rodriguez, especially Grayson Rodriguez, because we know that he has ace-like potential. And we're going to know at the end of this season, I think, first of all, we're going to have a pretty good sense of whether or not he's going to reach that potential and what he's going to have to do to get there. And I think we'll be able to know how quickly it is. So if the Orioles feel like Rodriguez can take a really big step forward in 2024, that might put them more in the market for a number two or a number three. If Braddis takes a step forward and he looks like he could at least be a capable number two, again, that means that you're not necessarily having to go out and trade for a top-tier guy because those two guys can take the step forward. However, if we realize after this year that maybe Braddis isn't going to quite get to that level and that Rodriguez is going to need another year or so to settle in before he really takes off, then that could put the onus on the Orioles to go out and make a move. Now, for the second part of your question, I do think that it's a question of when and not if we're going to see an extension. I mean, you just look around baseball today, and teams can't sustain a level of success for long term without locking up some of their players. And even teams that don't spend a lot of money, like Tampa Bay and Cleveland, do give out extensions. So I expect... I wouldn't be shocked if we saw an extension during the season, but I would imagine that at least by January, somebody is locked up. Fingers crossed that it's Adley Rutschman. Maybe Gunnar Henderson is in that mix as well, but we know with Henderson as a Scott Boris client that that's going to be a lot more challenging. Not impossible, I should say, but a lot more challenging than someone who isn't a Boris client. But I think that the Orioles are going to do something sooner rather than later, even if it's making everyone anxious in the process. I'll go to a question now from at ZachAttack8211, who has a really good question here. How would you rank these outfielders based off of who is closest to being Major League ready? And he lists Colton Kowser, Heston Kerstad, John Rhodes, Judd Fabian, and Dylan Beavers. This is a really good question, and I think that Colton Kowser would go first on my list. I think that regardless of whether it's on a corner or in center field. He's going to find a home defensively in the major leagues. He's really taking off at the plate right now. He's got an excellent plate approach, and that's something that we've seen with him throughout his career. He's going to draw a lot of walks. He's going to be, I think, possibly a good top-of-the-order hitter, maybe even a leadoff guy down the road, and I could see him getting major league time this year. So Kowser is number one. Then I go Kerstad number two. Kerstad has that card-carrying tool with his power. 
His power is something that can get him to the major leagues. But what he has done this year is he has shown that he is a much more complete hitter. And I have to give him a ton of credit because if you had asked me this question last August, I would have said that there was a considerable gap between Colton Kowser and Heston Kerstad. And Kerstad has done a lot to narrow that gap since the end of last season at Aberdeen. He hit really well in the playoffs, then carried that over to the Arizona Fall League, spring training, and now the start of this season at Bowie. So Kerstad is number two. And then after that, um, you could really flip a coin, I think, with these three guys in Rhodes, Beavers, and Fabian. I'll go with Rhodes first because he's at AA now. He's off to a good start. And he's got some attributes that are really good. He can hit for power. He's got a really good arm in the outfield. I think he has a ceiling of it being at least a dependable everyday right fielder. So I would go with him third. And then between Beavers and Fabian is where it gets kind of interesting because I think Beavers is ahead of Fabian offensively. I think he's a more complete hitter at this point. But Fabian has that really good center field defense. The kind of center field defense where even if he only hits 245 at AAA, you might consider bringing him up to the major leagues because he plays such a good center field. And then he can hit for power and draw walks. So it's close between those two. I think I do lean with Beavers a little bit because the bat is ahead of where I think Fabian is right now. But you could make an argument that Fabian is ahead of Beavers. And in fact, um, Zach, I want you to come back to us with this question again in August or September. Because my answer now is different than it would have been at the end of last season. And I suspect that later this year, my answer or Bob or Nick could have a different answer than what I had today. So if you keep it in mind, please bring this question back to us later this year. Because I think it's going to be really interesting to discuss once these guys, especially Rhodes, Beavers, and Fabian, show us a little bit more. We'll go to a question now from at Brian McClanahan, who wants to know what makes the Ironbird Stadium so bad for hitters. Dimensions, lights, something else. So I'll start with the dimensions because that's really the obvious place. The power alleys in Aberdeen are really deep and the ball just does not carry there. If you can poke one perfectly down the line, it's got a good chance to get out. But we know a lot of hitters can't necessarily do that and that the gaps are called the power alleys for a reason. I was at a playoff game last year and I saw Heston Kerstad hit a ball out to right center that I think would have been out from at most ballparks. And instead, at Aberdeen, it just didn't carry, and he had to settle for a double. So I suspect that that's a problem that a lot of guys have. So you would start with the dimensions, but Daryl Hernandez actually gave us a lot of good insight when he was on our show back in November. That was obviously before he was traded to Oakland. He talked about some of the challenges of hitting at Aberdeen. There was an issue with a light um, out in the outfield that was fixed last year, but then he also said that the batter's eye was see-through, which I think means that it's kind of made of a mesh-type material rather than being a solid wall, and that that can affect the way the hitters see the baseball, especially early in the game for 7.05 starts. So I don't, I've don't, i not been to Ripken Stadium this year, so I don't know if that's still the case or not, where the hitter's eye, where the batter's eye is not a solid wall, and it's just sort of a thin material. But that was something that Daryl talked about when he was on our show. 
And I have to imagine that that is a real challenge for hitters. So I would say that the dimensions are the first part of the issue for hitters, but then the ability to really see and pick up the baseball is much harder at Aberdeen than it is at other ballparks. At King of Fedora says, we have so many infield prospects, the Orioles are bound to trade some of them for a legit starting pitcher, right? That seems to be the million dollar question. And one that my answer to right now is yes, probably eventually, just not right now. Uh, I think that first off, they want to see how their infielders at the major league level look this year. How Ortiz, Westberg, and Norby, I think especially Ortiz and Norby because they don't have as much AAA time, how they develop a AAA this year. And then, you know, if you're looking at where you're going to trade from, the conversation does start with those three guys, I think. So it is going to happen at some point, I think, just because it does make sense. And it kind of already did happen with the Daryl Hernandez cole Urban deal. But I just don't think the Orioles are in a huge rush to do it because they want to take advantage of this depth while they have it. I think they want to make sure that, you know, everyone at the major league level stays healthy and productive this year. And at some point, if they, you know, feel like they can go get a starting pitcher and move one of those guys, they will do it. But I just think that they're taking their time with it for right now. Go this question here from at L3 Tal35, who wants to know, are the 2023 Tides a better baseball team than the 2021 Orioles? And the answer to your question is, yes, they are much better than the 2021 Orioles. The 2021 Orioles, they're such a weird team to me because they actually had a lot of things go well. There were a lot of positives that season. John Means had the no-hitter as part of what was a very good year. Cedric Mullins had the 30-30 season. And Trey Mancini had the comeback year, which was really special and always something that I'll remember fondly. But otherwise, that team was really bad. And I can definitely say that the current Tithe team is at least a lot more entertaining. Now, of course, we don't know, you know, in a three game, three or four game series, there could be some things that would break the 2021 Orioles way. But yeah, the, the 2023 Tides are a much more entertaining team. And honestly, I think they're better just top to bottom. When you look at their roster, there really is not a weak spot. They've got good arms in the rotation. They've got good arms in the bullpen. They've got really good hitters top to bottom. And not just, you know, a bunch of power hitters. They've got guys who will give you really, really good at-bats. Colton Cowser is locked in right now. He is excellent at the top of that order. Joey Ortiz is hitting the ball hard and hitting it in the air. So his success from Bowie at the end of last year has carried itself over. We know that Connor Norby is as capable of anybody of turning on a hard fastball and hitting it out of the park. So that team is just a lot of fun to watch right now. We'll wrap up now with this question from David Adams, who wants a series preview. And since Bob covered the Tigers last week when he was on with Vivek, I'll jump ahead on the schedule and I'll start with the Red Sox, who are coming to town on Monday. Having just played the Red Sox a few weeks ago, I think we have a pretty good sense of who they are as a team. The pitching staff leaves a lot to be desired. The offense doesn't have the firepower that it had a few years ago, but still a lot of guys who will give you 
tough at bats. You know, take someone like Justin Turner. Justin Turner might not scare you the way that he would have in, say, 2019, but he's still capable of giving you a tough at bat. Rafael Devers, we know, can do a lot of damage when he has a bat in his hand. So the Red Sox, um, you know, definitely not a team you want to take for granted. They showed that when they took two out of three at Fenway to start the season. And then as for the Tigers, um, they're playing better than I think we would have expected them to have played. They were really bad last year, but it's 7-11. and Not a bad start to the season for them. Three games out in the American League Central. Uh, the pitching staff looked good in Game 1. We'll see how they look the rest of the series. But honestly, given that the Tigers kind of beat up on the Orioles last year, I don't want to take them for granted and sit here and tell you that the Orioles are going to roll over them for the rest of this series in Baltimore and then next weekend when they go to Detroit because that might not be the case. But, um, you know, they're going to make things challenging, I think, for the Orioles, even if the Orioles come out ahead. It kind of reminds me of the National Series a little bit where going into that, I knew the Orioles were capable of sweeping the Nationals. But I also looked at Desiah Gray and Mackenzie Gore pitching back-to-back and thought these two guys can make life a lot harder on the Orioles hitters because they're pretty good pitchers. They could you know, go up against the Orioles much better than a lot of pitchers in the national staff. And I think for the most part, the two of them did that. So the Tigers, don't take them for granted. They taught us the hard way last year, but the Orioles should win this series and I think stand a good chance of winning the series in Detroit next weekend as well. I'll wrap up with a topic that has been discussed a lot recently, not just among the Orioles media, but nationally as well, and that's Jorge Mateo. The good news is that Mateo is probably going to avoid an IL stint, should be back in the next few days um, as he recovers from that hip issue. And Mateo, we know that what he can do when he's on the field. He's really an electric player sometimes, phenomenal defender. The level of success that he's having right now is not going to be sustainable throughout the season, but he is definitely making better decisions at the plate. Last year, it felt like you could draw up a really easy blueprint for how to get Jorge Mateo out. Just pitch him away with a slider, get ahead in the count, and then you finish him off. This year, I think that he's being a little bit more selective at the plate And that's allowing him to drive the ball a lot more. He definitely seems to be buying into what the Orioles are selling in terms of swing decisions. And credit to him and credit to Ryan Fuller and Matt Borg-Salty. Because even if he does not sustain that, I think you're looking at a guy who could be comfortably a three to four win player this year. Three to four win player this year because, number one, he's an elite defender and he's going to be better at the plate. Now, what that means for the rest of this year and how that affects the Orioles' prospects is something that we get asked about a lot. So I thought that I would take the opportunity here at the end of the mailbag to talk about that. Basically, I think if the Orioles are contending this year and Jorge Mateo is having a good year at shortstop and he's doing at least what he did last year, which is flashing that elite speed and playing a gold glove caliber shortstop, they're not going to make a change. They're going to roll with Mateo at shortstop for at least the rest of this year. Because it's really hard when you're in the middle of this season to change out at a position like that when you have a premium defender there if you're having success. Especially when you have 
a lot of pitchers on the staff who rely on the ground ball. You know, you brought in Kyle Gibson under the premise that the Orioles infield defense was going to help make him better after a rough year in Philadelphia. And Jorge Mateo is a huge part of that. And while I think the world of Joey Ortiz as a player, and I think he can be an elite shortstop at the major league level, we also know that defense is not always automatic. Success on defense is not something that's always going to carry over directly from the minor leagues to the majors right away, and the guy is going to hit the ground running because, you know, we saw this with Cedric Mullins when he came up in 2018. Kyle Stowers went through it a little bit last year. Gunnar Henderson is going through it right now. Sometimes it takes a while to catch up on defense. Your defense is not going to be as good as it was in the minor leagues when you first get to the majors, and you just hope that a guy, after enough experience, is able to make adjustments. And that's not to say that I think Ortiz is going to be a bad shortstop when he comes up right away. He just might not be an elite-level guy. And I don't think that that's a chance that the Orioles are going to want to take this year if they are winning. So as for where Ortiz fits in, I definitely think he's going to get Major League time this year. He's on the 40-man roster now. And what I could see later this year is maybe a scenario where he actually gets a lot of time at second. Because if you have him and Mateo up the middle... You've got a truly elite middle infield backing up your pitching staff. And then you could put Gunner, who hopefully as the season goes on gets better at third base, or Ramona Rios, last year's gold glove winner at third base, and have a really good infield defense most nights. Adam Frazier is getting the job done at second base right now, so I'm really not concerned about it. But if you want to work Ortiz in without you know, possibly making a compromise at the shortstop position... That would be a way to do it. And then as for Jordan Westberg and Connor Norby, I just think that the versatility is going to be the key for Jordan Westberg. He's got to be able to play a little bit of left field because it's going to be hard to consistently find at bats for him in the infield. And I think that when he's in the infield, he's mainly going to be working between second base and third base. Norby, I think, does need to work on the defense a little bit at Norfolk. So I could see him there for a while, but... The possible, you know, what he could give you down the road, which is maybe at his peak, a 20 to 25 homer bat. If he pairs that with above average defense at second base, that's a really good player. But if the Orioles are successful this year, their infield is going to be a big part of it. And I just don't see them really shaking things up unless they have to. So, of course, as the year goes on, we'll get a sense of, you know, who they're going to target at the trade deadline, how much they're willing to give up to possibly go get a starting pitcher or fill in another need for this team, whether that's left field, another position where there could be issues down the line, or maybe even the bullpen. And while I'm not in favor of splurging on a reliever at the trade deadline, because that tends to be when teams overpay for relievers, and that turns it into a seller's market, it's you know, more of a seller's market than what we see in the offseason, it is possible the Orioles could go out and add an arm. So that's just something to keep in mind for the rest of this year, which is that if the Orioles are having success and this infield is part of that, they're not going to shake things up unless they have to. And I think that especially at shortstop, if Jorge Mateo is giving you that gold glove level defense and you're winning, you're not going to move on from him during the season. You're going to continue to roll with him. And then when you get into the offseason, that's when you start having the conversation of, okay, do we go with Joey Ortiz to start the 2024 campaign? 
If that's our guy, then what do we do with Mateo? Do we move him to a utility role? Do we dangle him out there to see what we could get in a trade? Because I think a team would give you a lot, would give you something of value for Mateo, even if he's not hitting, because he is such a good shortstop. But these are all things we're going to play out. We just have to give it some time. And I think that, you know, for right now, we can agree that the Orioles are a better team when Jorge Mateo is on the field and that we hope that he's back there as quickly as possible. That will do it for this week's mailbag. Thank you again for the excellent questions, both from members of our Patreon community as well as our followers on Twitter. If you have not signed up for a Patreon community yet, please consider doing so. You can join for as little as $3 a month, have ad-free episodes, access to our WhatsApp group, and then at the 5 and $10 levels, have exclusive daily content throughout the season. And I should also plug the fact that in about two weeks, we will be rolling out our updated top 50 prospect list exclusively for patrons for the month of May. And of course, with Gunnar Henderson graduating, we are going to have a new number one. So if you want to listen to that and more, join our Patreon community. And of course, we will take questions throughout the season from our Patreon uh, community, as well as our followers and social media and anyone who listens to the show. So keep the good questions coming. Bob or Nick will have you covered next week. And then for our patrons, I will be on tomorrow morning and Monday morning with the exclusive daily recap. Have a great weekend. Try to stay dry in this weather weather, and go O's. That'll do it for this week's episode of On The Verge. Be sure to check out our Patreon page where you can help show your support for the show and get bonus content, including monthly top 50 updates to our prospect list and daily game recaps during the season and much, much more. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.